5: I recently came upon this quotation from the mystic and theologian Meister Eckhart. Every single creature is full of God and is a book about God. Every creature is a word of God. He wrote that over 700 years ago, and yet I feel it every time I go to a farm sanctuary or make eye contact with my dog. I'm Victoria Moran, and I thank you for tuning into the Main Street Vegan program. After the break, we're going to be talking about my dog and your dog and your cat and hamster and all the companion animals we love with vegan veterinarian Dr. Andrew Knight joining us from New Zealand. And right now, it's a true honor to introduce music legend, DJ, songwriter, photographer, vegan, animal rights activist, and recently restaurateur, Moby. Welcome to Main Street Vegan. Hi. Hey, it's wonderful to have you. I'm sure that everybody listening to this program knows about your your veganism, your animal work, but I don't know that we know how that all came about for you. Can you share that with us?
6: Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, like most people, I grew up sort of inhabiting the strange paradox that so many people have around animals, which is when I was growing up in suburban Connecticut, I loved animals unconditionally. You know, we had rescue dogs, rescued cats, rescued lizards, rescued hamsters and gerbils, and I loved them, but I also loved going to Burger King and McDonald's and Wendy's, and I loved, you know, pepperoni pizza and sausage pizza, and it didn't seem like a paradox to me because it was so ubiquitous. You know, that paradox still is the status quo for our culture, not just in the West, but everywhere. And then when I was 19 years old, I was petting a rescue cat of ours whose name was Tucker. And all of a sudden, I felt sort of like Saul on the road to Damascus, where like the scales fell from my eyes, and I realized that Tucker, this rescue cat whom I loved unconditionally, had two eyes and a central nervous system and a rich emotional life and a profound desire to avoid pain and suffering and a simple desire to just live his own life. I suddenly realized that every creature with two eyes and a central nervous system has a rich emotional life, a deep desire to avoid pain and suffering, and just a desire to like pursue their own will and live their own life. And that was, I guess, 35 years ago. So I've been a vegan now for 30 years. In fact, November 2017 is my 30-year vegan anniversary.
5: Congratulations.
6: And to be honest, animal rights and animal welfare, that's that's my life's work.
5: Yes. So how did that juxtapose with being a performer?
6: Uh, I mean, they they overlap to an extent. Um, In a perfect world... I would be really great at writing issue-oriented music. You know, because a lot of my heroes are people who were really great at writing issue-oriented music, whether it's John Lennon or John Fogarty or The Clash or The Sex Pistols or Chuck D. from Public Enemy. Like, I love people who are able to communicate their beliefs through their music, but I'm not very good at writing Animal rights-based music. So the music I've made has been more, I'd say like subjective and personal and emotional, but I've used my status or my stature as a public figure musician to try and draw attention to the cause of animal rights, which to me is, you know, the cause that's closest to my heart.
5: Absolutely. Uh, there's so much to be said for that. I think the world looks at us as being unidimensional. And when people are out there doing their, their art and, and doing what they're good at, not necessarily directly about animals and vegans, I think people look at animals and vegans in a different way. So there's so much interest in vegan living this day. And probably right now, we're still at the phase where there's more interest in vegan food. So tell us about your restaurant.
6: Well, I, I used to have a restaurant in New York called Teeny, T-E-A-N-Y, um, but I ended my involvement with that about 10 years ago, and now I live in Los Angeles, and two years ago, I opened a restaurant here called Little Pine, and I guess one of the things that makes Little Pine unique is that I run it as a nonprofit. so any profits or any proceeds that are generated by Little Pine go to animal rights organizations. Um so it's a very odd form of entrepreneurialism in that I personally can never make a penny from my restaurant
5: that all to the good cuz the animals can. So that is in Silver Lake, correct?
6: It's in Silver Lake in Los Angeles,
5: yeah. Okay, that's a lovely little pocket of Los Angeles. So the reason we are really talking is that a super-duper major event is going to be happening November 19th in Los Angeles, and that is Circle V. Can you tell us what that's all about?
6: Well, I need to offer a slight correction. It's actually November 18th.
5: Oh, my apologies. November 18th. Okay. Yeah,
6: so so Circle V, uh, we did it for the first year last year. Also in Los Angeles. And this is our second year. And it's basically a music and food and activism festival that was started by me and uh, Mercy for Animals and my friend Tony from the band No Doubt. And the goal was to just sort of celebrate animal rights and animal activism by getting different bands and different speakers and different food trucks and different vegan artists. Um, It's not exclusively, well, I mean, all the people involved are vegan, but the audience doesn't have to be vegan. You know, like we're, if someone stops at McDonald's on the way to Circle V, we might not celebrate their choice, but we certainly welcome them at the festival.
5: <laughs> yeah, those are the ones we're trying to reach. Mm-hmm. So I heard that this is your only live show of 2017. Why did you choose Circle V?
6: well, I love making music, but I hate touring. And I also, I feel like, and maybe I'm very much stating the obvious in saying this, but the world in which we live is a catastrophe. You know, and we're we're on a daily basis living through this calamitous apocalypse. And it's about to get a lot worse. I mean, I don't want to sound all Cassandra-esque and pessimistic, but things are, are not good, especially for the 100 billion animals who are killed every year by and for humans. So my only interest in making art or making music or performing at this point is to try to somehow, insofar as I can, in whatever small way, make the world a better place and try and get people to wake up And to just simply correct the course that we're on, you know, that course, as it affects us, as it affects animals, as it affects our potential offspring, you know, so in addition to not wanting to tour, I only want my public performances to somehow be involved in, you know, either raising money or attention for the issue of animal rights. So that's why this is my only live show of the year.
5: That's wonderful. So who else will be there? Who do we get to see and hear?
6: Well, in terms of music, it's uh, Tony from No Doubt, his band uh, Dream Car are also playing, Um, Reggie Watts, um, two hip-hop artists called Waka Flocka Flame and Rory, um, a bunch of smaller bands, and then lots of vegan activists, you know, everyone from Kathy Freston to Ingrid Newkirk to Kat Von D you know like countless vegan activists and then about 15 local food vendors including my own restaurant Little Pine.
5: Oh it sounds heavenly 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 and when people attend uh, are they supporting directly supporting animal rights?
6: Yeah I mean again, any profits generated from Circle V go directly to Mercy for Animals. Wow. And I, 100% of my fee goes to Mercy for Animals, so I actually, as is true with a lot of the things I do, I will be losing money by performing, but I just, and I'm sure this will make sense to you and to a lot of people listening, like, I feel like the the age of selfishness needs to come to an end. You know, we live in this culture where people are shamelessly self-promoting and just trying to sort of like buy their way into happiness. And it would be wonderful to live in a world where that was an option without consequences. But we live in a world where our selfishness is not just destroying 100 billion animals every year, but destroying the world in which we live. And so I'd much rather perform and lose money and support an organization that I care about, then go out and try and like make a little extra money so I can buy some stupid consumer item that isn't going to make me happy.
5: Oh, for sure. Oh my goodness. Talk about a a message driven album title, The Age of Selfishness is over. Yeah, uh, that would be a good one. That's pretty powerful. So I know that people can get more information at circlev.com. I presume that's also where we buy tickets.
6: Yeah, and uh, to be honest, tickets are about to sell out. I think we only have 200 tickets left, and that's as you and I are talking. So I, I hope that anyone who wants to come is able to get tickets, and if not, then hopefully we'll see you next year.
5: Oh, for sure. It, it just sounds amazing. It sounds like one of those festivals that's going to become legendary and we can do all we can to work and make that happen. Just really quickly, Moby, I know your time is limited. When we look at the number of vegans in the entertainment industry, it sometimes looks like it's everybody, but you're in it. So from your vantage point, how mainstream is veganism in Hollywood?
6: Ah. Uh. I mean, to put it in perspective, as I mentioned earlier, um, this is my 30-year vegan anniversary. And there are more vegan restaurants in a two-mile radius of my house than there were on the entire planet 30 years ago. (laughs) I remember,
5: because I'm at 34 years November 17th.
6: (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's... L.A., I mean, all big cities, you know, San Francisco, L.A., Vancouver, New York, London, like, are all really easy places to be vegan, but sort of, to your question, and it's, I'm trying to truncate my answer, but basically, there's so many reasons for people to consider veganism, you know? Of course, there's the love for animals and the belief that animals have their own sort of, like, innate rights and will, but also, you know... Animal agriculture is the fact that 45% of climate change comes from animal agriculture and 90% of rainforest deforestation and 75% of antibiotic resistance. And so many zoonotic diseases come from animal agriculture and cancer, diabetes, obesity. But also, as if that wasn't enough, the fact that – and again, I'm very much stating the obvious – vegans tend to, like, be thin, attractive – and live longer, and be happier. So it's this weird choice. This one choice enables you to save animals, save the planet, and save yourself. So I feel like that's why a lot of younger, more progressive people are choosing it.
5: Yes, they are indeed. And and some of us who aren't younger but we're still progressive. So just in closing, I want to get just a mite sentimental, and thank you that, Right about six years ago, almost exactly, you gave me a cover quote from my book, Main Street Vegan. You didn't know me. You were just willing to lend some of your considerable influence to somebody with quite a bit less. And that book has spawned this podcast, an academy that has trained over 300 vegan coaches practicing in 21 countries, a off cookbook coming next month, and the ability to help me make vegans every day. So, Moby, to you, I will always be grateful. Thank you. Oh, thanks.
6: And I also have to say, I mean, I'm sure you can appreciate this as well because you've been vegan for 34 years. Like, in addition to saving animals, saving ourselves, and saving the world, it's also a really exciting time to be a vegan because, you know, I mean, this movement is just growing by leaps and bounds. And there's so much unity and so much strength and so much commitment on the part of vegan activists. So, I mean, I'm involved with a lot of different progressive causes, but I have to say, you know, animal, you know, being an animal activist is in addition the most important thing I do. It's also the most exciting.
5: Oh, that's wonderful. And I think there is something special about being in a movement for others that any other movement for anybody's freedom and acceptance and whatever those people have always been a part of it and now we're doing this for those who can't directly participate and i think it kind of keeps us honest
6: yeah and also there's that that spiritual alignment because humans are at their best when they're selflessly protecting the innocent and defending the vulnerable. Like, there's no better expression of the human condition than that.
5: Mm. Well, bless you. For all you do and listeners, um, I know if I had a dollar for every one of you who's asked me to have Moby on, I would be flying out there for the Circle V myself. We're going to have uh, Circle V info and Moby info, all the social media, etc., on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. So check that out. Make it to the festival this year, or gosh, if you can't get a ticket next year, and Moby, may you continue to save animals and change this planet. All the best.
6: Oh, and I I wish the same for you. Thank you.
5: Thank you. Bye okay, bye. And bye. Bye, Bye. everybody else. Stay with us because after the break, we're going to be talking to somebody, gosh, I wish I had in my immediate personal life, and that is a vegan veterinarian. Stay with us.
2: Wouldn't you like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives.
4: What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, Feeling younger as you grow older and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com or your favorite bookseller. Be sure to grab the latest issue of Unity Magazine and read the interview with Ram Dass, the iconic spiritual leader of the 60s. He's now focused on how to age consciously. Spiritual author Thomas Moore reflects on grumpy old men and women. And Barbara Bowen writes a touching story about her experience as a caregiver to her mother with dementia. To subscribe to Unity Magazine, go to Unity.org and click on Publications.
5: Welcome back to the Main Street Vegan program. If you want to know anything more about what we do, do check out www.mainstreetvegan.net. Happy to be there to help you with any of your vegan questions and just make the world better. I am very happy to be able to introduce our next guest because so many people want to be able to to find out some of the things that this gentleman knows and how wonderful we're going to be learning all that right now. Dr. Andrew Knight is a professor of animal welfare and ethics. He's director of the Center for Animal Welfare at the University of Winchester, a European and Royal College of Veterinary Specialist in Animal Welfare Science ethics and law, an American veterinary specialist in animal welfare, and a senior fellow of the UK Higher Education Academy. He has over 65 academic publications and a series of YouTube videos on animal issues. Welcome, Andrew Knight.
7: Uh, good morning.
5: What a, what a pleasure to be speaking with you. I, I On the one hand, I feel sad that There are so few people in your profession who know what you know that I need to be talking to you in New Zealand, but (laughs) I know that like every other aspect of uh, coming to embrace animals as the beings that they are, there will be more and more of you as time goes on. So please...
7: (laughs) Exciting change happening in this area at the moment. The veterinary profession has traditionally been very conservative, but... Uh, We've recently seen the establishment of new veterinary specialty colleges in animal welfare and ethics and policy. Uh, There's been one established uh, in the US uh, recently. There was one established in Europe recently. There have been major conferences within the profession on animal welfare and ethics and new textbooks being released as well. So there's actually a lot of movement happening in this area just in the last five years, So, so things are getting better, I'm pleased to say.
5: Oh, that's wonderful. So in your own personal case, were you a veterinarian first or an animal rights person first?
7: Well, I actually... um helped launch the Australian campaign against the live sheep trade back in the mid-1990s because I grew up in Perth, Western Australia, which is kind of like Los Angeles in the US in terms of its location. It's It's got uh, perfect weather almost and fabulous beaches, but it's also the world capital of the live sheep export trade to uh, the Middle East, so, uh, I grew up watching these, uh, trucks with the overcrowded, stressed sheep, uh, being, uh, shipped off to the docks to start their horror voyage to the Middle East. And, and I got drawn into, uh, this huge animal welfare issue. Uh, and then I, I wanted to figure out how I could become sort of, uh, more effective in, in uh, having specialist qualifications, uh, specialised knowledge uh, about uh, this issue and the others and, and I realised I wanted to go to veterinary school uh, and everything um, sort of led from there. Uh, clearly I, I, I lacked a bit of uh, work-life balance I think for the next 20 years and, <laughs> and, and sort of uh, accumulated too many um, post-nominal qualifications but it's all been um, very worthwhile in, in helping me to, to campaign for animals.
5: Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I think that most people who change the world do come up a little bit short on work life balance. Just since you started uh, talking a bit about the sheep, for those people who are new to all of this and who think that wool is just like getting a haircut, can you just tell us what the issue is with sheep, wool, mutton, that whole thing?
7: Yeah, I mean, there's a whole range of uh, animal welfare concerns associated with sheep farming and it's certainly a prominent issue down here in New Zealand and also Australia uh, where I come from. Um, there are a range of issues. There's uh, neonatal mortality, so and actually quite a big proportion of lambs actually die uh, um, because of exposure, lack of nutrition, uh, bad weather. Uh, there's a lot of winter lambing uh, that is organised in order to meet uh, production uh, timeframes uh, for, for for the production of wool. Um, so that's a big issue. Uh, there is a uh, high prevalence of lameness, which is actually a very pain, painful condition uh, for sheep and also cows. Uh, there are substantial stresses involved uh, during the shearing process when these uh, naturally prey animals are herded up by sheep dogs, who, who are naturally a predator for those animals, uh, and then separated out from the flock. And this is this is quite stressful for uh, herding animals like sheep, uh, manhandled in awkward positions, and then have their their coats uh, taken from them and unfortunately there have been videos released recently uh, by peter of some quite uh, serious animal abuse uh, of some sheep that occurred uh, in shearing so so that it does also happen unfortunately sometimes it's it's probably got something to do with the fact that the shears are paid uh, not by the hour but paid by uh production volume so they're under pressure to be quick and the work is physical and it's exhausting and they're under time pressure as well so uh corners do get cut unfortunately and animals do get uh, manhandled and sometimes, as we saw on the videos, actually abused uh, and, and even occasionally killed. Unfortunately, so um, there are some real animal welfare concerns. So we certainly ask people to bear that in mind and consider uh, more ethical uh, products. To be honest, such as our uh, synthetic fibres, uh, which which are also uh, low allergy and will keep uh, keep you warm if they become wet. Uh, neither of which wool is able to achieve.
5: Yes. Now, you also mentioned that you were involved with with the shipping of the sheep. My understanding is Australia is the biggest wool producer, but Australians aren't big mutton eaters. So these wool sheep end up being shipped somewhere else in pretty awful conditions. Is this correct?
7: Yeah, I mean, Australians are not big mutton eaters, uh, but there has been an enormous uh, industry of shipping sheep to uh, primarily Middle Eastern destinations on a sea voyage of uh, around about two and a half weeks, which is one of the longest ones in the world. Uh, The conditions on the ships um, have been revealed to be really quite appalling uh, colleague of mine is one of Australia's most experienced uh, live export veterinarians. Uh, has, she's travelled on uh, over 65 long-haul voyages and, uh, uh, and sort of an internal government report that she prepared about welfare conditions in the industry full of photos of conditions on the ships uh, the, the the sheep uh, cannot be cleaned. The decks cannot be properly cleaned until the sheep are offloaded. So there's a heavy accumulation of uh, feces, uh, urine, and uh, disgusting conditions, which which effectively coats these animals in in what Dr. Simpson described as being a fecal jacket, which contribute contributes to heat stress as these animals pass through the tropics and then onto the Middle Eastern destinations. It's a major issue for for these uh, sheep and causes thousands of, of deaths on the ships on a regular basis Um, so she documented all these sorts of appalling conditions on the ships uh, with an awful lot of photographs Uh, that wasn't meant to go public that was an internal industry report um, but it was leaked by somebody else uh, into the public domain and caused an absolute scandal in Australia so so we know that uh, there are terrible conditions. The number of animals, uh, when I was involved in this uh, heavily, uh, we around about 5 million uh, sheep being exported live each year, so really big numbers, really long uh, voyage to the Middle East and terrible conditions uh, for the sheep both on the ships and also when they arrived uh, in the Middle East and uh, are slaughtered uh, in slaughterhouses that don't comply with anything like uh, Western standards of slaughter. Uh, today, um, our sister organisation, Animals Australia, uh, has investigators in the Middle East, uh, often undercover, who are documenting the conditions in the uh, slaughtering facilities and it uh, regularly causes major scandals uh, within Australia, including primetime television, uh, resulting in the trade being uh, shut down uh, from time to time and then reopened some months later because of uh, economic uh, concerns.
5: Mm, my goodness. And for anybody thinking, this sounds awful, but... What do I do? I need a coat. I just want to send you to TotalImageConsultants.com. That's Ginger Burr, wonderful vegan image consultant. She's always scouring every kind of retailer where you can get wonderful sweaters, coats, etc. Vote, V-A-U-T-E.com. Fabulous, gorgeous uh, winter coats. Dress up nice winter coats that you can wear to church and wear out to dinner um, lafcnyc.com that's La Fashionista Compassionista NYC wonderful online fashion magazine that you can still get for free uh, also will help you find lots and lots of non-wool gorgeous ethical environmentally friendly um, things to wear so uh, Dr. Knight moving on when you talked about the sheepdogs being the natural predator that's a perfect segue into a lot of us have companion animals in the family. A lot of us have dogs and cats who, when I look in their mouth, they look like carnivores. So let's start with dogs and then move into cats. How can we get our pets to eat vegan and be healthy and happy?
7: Well, I think the concern that most people have is probably the health issue as as the number one um, because we know that uh, cats are uh, obligate carnivores, dogs are uh, biologically considered to be omnivores, uh, but we often do think of them as um, a predator animal as well. So it's understandable that uh, many people naturally assume that these animals you know, must uh, eat meat and will become sick and unwell if they don't. But the reality is that Animals um, need a specific set of ingredients uh, rather than nutrients, and people often forget that those those are not the same thing. Uh, we all have uh, requirements for a certain set of uh, nutrients, and... Um, and the nutrients may vary uh, between men and women at different stages of our lives, pregnancy, old age, infancy, and so on. The same is true with animals, cats and dogs, and other species. So we've all got requirements for a certain set of uh, nutrients. Now, there's, there's no scientific reason why an animal should be unhealthy if – uh, you supply it with all the nutrients that it needs, uh, in a reasonably balanced formulation, uh, from, uh, vegetable synthetic and mineral sources. There's no need for, uh, for any meat to be in that diet. People often think about uh, taurine uh, as being a particular amino acid that cats need, uh, which comes from meat. And without taurine, uh, these animals will eventually get uh, retinal gene- generation and, and loss of vision. Uh, they'll get uh, cardiac problems. Uh, they'll have birth defects if they're reproducing. Um, However, what people don't realize is that the taurine that's supplied in the meat-based diets tends to be destroyed by the uh, chemical treatments, the temperatures uh, involved in processing of the meat. And after the uh, processing is finished, uh, taurine has to be added back into the Diet and it's added back in from a synthetic source. Now there's no reason why you can't use the same sort of synthetic ingredients along with mineral-based and vegetable ingredients to supply all of the nutrients that cats and dogs need and that's exactly what the vegetarian and the vegan commercial diets aim to do and there's a growing number of those uh, out there now.
5: So do you have companion animals in your life?
7: Um I've, I certainly have in the past, but uh, these days I tend to travel too much and work hours that are too, too long. And sadly, I don't think I'd be, um, a good enough, uh, animal guardian. I wouldn't be able to give them the sort of the time and the care and attention that, that they really need. So, uh, I don't really. I've got a small, uh, fluffy, uh, lion with a love heart on, on the end of its tail that was given to me by my wonderful partner. Um, but that's it, I'm afraid.
5: Oh. Well, that's lovely, but I was asking to say, if you did, uh, tell me, if you had a dog, what would this dog eat? And if you had a cat, what would the cat eat?
7: Well, you know, there, there's two choices uh, for these these animals. It's either buy a, a commercial uh, vegan diet um, or it's make a homemade diet. So uh, lots of, uh, for example, dogs you know, might like a mixed diet of pasta, veggies, uh potatoes, other sort of, um, table scraps but with um, a nutritional supplement added in uh, because if you just feed a homemade diet without adding in a nutritional supplement, then uh, it's pretty certain that uh, the diet will be nutritionally deficient and you won't see problems, you know, the next day or the next week. But in the long term, you will see signs of nutritional deficiency. So um, those are the two choices. Uh, either a homemade diet with a nutritional supplement from one of the uh, commercial suppliers or else a complete diet from a commercial supplier um, I have a, a website which is uh, vegipets.info, v-e-g-e-pets.info, which lists uh, suppliers in North America, Europe, uh, Australasia, and elsewhere that actually sell all of these sorts of things. Um, it's, you know, I, I provide this as a non-profit service. I don't make any money or anything, uh, from it. Um, but it's, it's one of the growing numbers of, uh, places people can go to if they want to find out where they can get these sorts of diets from. If it was me personally, I'm afraid I wouldn't be doing the homemade diet, uh, A, because I'm too much of a glutton and probably would, would eat it all myself and there wouldn't be any leftovers that there, there aren't usually. And B, because I actually don't have, uh, uh, time really to be cooking any more than the minimum necessary. So uh, I would I would buy a commercial diet uh, rather than go to the trouble of trying to formulate one um, and then add in the supplement. It would just be quicker and simpler uh, for me to do.
5: Yes. So veggie Pets vege pets. info. you have a lot of websites. You have Humane learning. info. Animal experiments got dot info, which we'll get to in a few minutes, uh, and we will put all those on the show notes at Mainstreetvegan dot So, could you just walk us through anyone who has a companion animal in their family, and the animal is still eating animal foods? How do we encourage perhaps a reticent uh, animal with large canines to <laughs> to to eat this food?
7: all right there's um animals are different in their personalities as as most of uh, your listeners are probably well aware um some dogs are well known for eating first and asking questions later whereas some cats particularly older very fussy cats uh, may be extremely reluctant to change their diets so i would recommend uh for a healthy adult that's not um got any medical conditions withholding food uh for um, perhaps half a day uh, beforehand just to stimulate hunger, and then offering a meal, which is a little bit of the new diet mixed up with a lot of the old diet and gradually transitioning the diet over a period of time. Um, perhaps a couple of weeks um, would be uh, ideal because that allows a gradual transition for the uh, digestive enzymes, for the... Um, for the the bacterial contents of the intestines, which uh, and if you do that gradual transition you 're least likely to see any adverse reactions such as diarrhea caused by uh, the bacteria and the enzymes not being adapted to the new diet yet, so a gradual transition. Um, over a couple of weeks, uh, but if you've got a very fussy old cat who's been used to a particular brand of meat-based uh, food for uh, many, many years uh, and is very reluctant to change, uh, then you might need to take six months or, or even longer uh, to do this. So that's the first thing. Uh, being being gradual, I think, um, you can try um, making sure that you offer only fresh food. Um, you can try gently warming uh, the food um the sense of smell is really important to cats and dogs so any any ingredients that that smell good uh, to them uh, you can try uh, tasty additives, things like vegetable oil, uh, spirulina, nori flakes, nutritional yeast flakes are all supposed to be helpful. Um, some animals, some dogs, for example, seem to like peanut butter, so it may vary with the animals. Um, definitely don't uh, alarm your animal by giving the game away that anything unusual might be going on. Don't don't sort of make a fuss and demonstrate that something is suspicious might be uh, happening to the food, uh, instead um, just behave as you normally would. and um, carry on as normal. And, and don't be concerned if your very intelligent uh, animal that you no doubt have um, is smart enough to carefully pick around all of the new food and refuse to eat it because simply having it uh, in close association with what it knows to be food will help to make the a necessary connection uh, in time. So I think the most important things are patience and persistence uh, with uh, some uh, very keen animals such as uh, Labradors, for example, are, are renowned for uh, wolfing down their food and asking questions later. Um, you may not have any difficulties whatsoever, uh, but the most stubborn uh, old cats have been successfully transitioned onto new diets, eventually using strategies such as these. So um, patience and persistence, I think, are important uh, with these animals.
5: Oh, That's very, very helpful. Thank you so much. Now, you are the author of a 2011 book, The Costs and Benefits of Animal Experiments. That's a very intriguing title coming from an animal rights person. So I I know that your PhD was based around this. And this is still a very controversial issue. You know, so often we'll, we'll get the argument, do you want to save the dog or save your child? and um it's tough so where do we start with this
7: oh uh, well um i think um, this is really very simple um, because we're asking people generally and particularly the scientific community just to come back to the essence of uh, scientific thinking and indeed rational thinking of any kind which which is the essence of science is to really uh, question assumptions about the world and to search for truth um, and it's an assumption that animal research uh, makes useful contributions to human health care that justify uh, all of the costs that go into that whether that be uh, animal lives, there are more than 127 million animals uh, consumed by animal research each year worldwide, whether it be scientific resource, whether it be finances, and there are huge uh, consumptions of, of those sorts of resources involved in animal research. So there is a, a widespread assumption that uh, the use of all of these uh, resources is actually justified because it produces benefits to human health care which are big enough uh, to make those uh, costs worthwhile. Um, but that's, that is an assumption. That's not a fact. And the essence of uh, science uh, is is to question things, including assumptions like this. And so, what I did in my I, my research, and what uh, quite a number of others have done uh, since, and are continuing to do is to actually look into uh, particular fields of of animal research. And you can do that by searching published uh, reports of animal experiments, uh, which is part of the published scientific literature, uh, which is available on the internet through um, search engines such as PubMed, which is a scientific literature search engine, you can find all this research and you can go through it and analyse it and you can work out how often, um, uh, you know, which proportion of this research uh, was uh, referenced by later um, publications uh, describing useful things for human patients and which proportion of this animal research was not referenced by any other work in the future at all. So it made no apparent contribution to any ongoing uh, useful um, treatment of human patients. So you can do these kinds of studies. And when you do these, uh, you get quantitative information. You actually get numbers. You find out how how much of this research does actually produce useful uh, results. And actually you find out that um, very, very little of that research goes into um, the development of treatments for human patients so what we find is actually it, it's an assumption that this research is generally useful for human patients um, and and worth the costs of, of doing that research and, and that assumption is actually not true when you you start to drill down and actually test that assumption um, and there's a lot of work being done in this area now there's really exciting papers coming out starting to figure out uh, why this why this is uh, there's all sorts of errors that we've uncovered involving the uh, scientific quality uh, of animal research that appear to be very, very widespread uh, and which are distorting the results of many of these experiments. And then even if we were to clean all that up, which would require an absolute sea change in the area of animal research, we'd still have the basic issue that um, animal models do not, uh, predict human beings uh, very well at all, uh, even if uh, the animal models are used in ways that don't introduce additional errors. So, so that's what my book uh, goes into in some depth, and, and all the other uh, scientific reports in this area have gone into um, uh, since then as well. And it's extremely controversial uh, and very interesting field.
5: Well, it is indeed, and I know that in recent years there have been so many alternatives that are being used, but I suppose when you line them up against the amount of animal experimentation that still goes on simply because these industries are so entrenched, uh, we still have a battle there as well. So what what's a vegan to do? You know, if if we become sick or injured, And go into the medical system. Are there any choices that we can make that are less harmful, that have less animal experimentation in their history? Or is it just not possible to judge that?
7: Well, the, the first thing uh, you can do as a vegan if you end up, uh, God forbid, in hospital is, of course, request uh, healthy vegan food uh, if you really want to have a, a long-term impact on your health and that's that's the most important thing you can do whether or not you're in hospital. Um, beyond that... Um, you know, do you have the option to request things like drugs or surgical treatments that were not developed, uh, using animals? Uh, unfortunately, your options to do that are really limited. You probably don't have much option in those areas. You probably need to accept the, um, um, uh, for the sake of uh, your health. You should go ahead and accept, uh, treatment when it is really needed, uh, in these areas. Um, except that historically it was the fact that animals were harmed uh, during the development of these clinical interventions, these drugs or these surgical procedures. Uh, I would dispute and many would dispute that the harming of the animals actually made any meaningful contribution to the development of these uh, procedures or drugs. Uh, it's something that that happened alongside the development of those procedures and drugs, but didn't necessarily actually assist uh, the development of them. Um, but your options to to find an alternate system of healthcare are very limited. There are, of course, uh, alternative and complementary therapies available, and uh, they tend not to involve harmful animal use in any way. Uh, they tend to be much more suitable for chronic and mild conditions uh, rather than acute or emergency conditions. Uh, So if you have the latter, then it's not worth uh, taking the risk, I think, with alternative and complementary therapies. Yes. And the the same applies to animal care as well.
5: Mm -hmm. As I was introducing you, it was uh, one of your many titles, the American Veterinary Specialist in Animal Welfare, that kind of caught my eye because it would seem, and certainly, you know, when you're growing up and and you take your, your companion animal to the vet, you just assume that this is a veterinary specialist in animal welfare. Why would anyone go to all the educational rigors to get this degree and not be deeply interested in the welfare of animals? And yet, most of us, see wonderful dedicated veterinarians who go out for lunch and get a hamburger can you help us understand this
7: sure um Historically, the veterinary profession had its origins in assisting, uh, farmers maximize, uh, the productivity of their farm animal industries, uh, or in, ma- in helping, uh, horse owners, um, with, uh, the health of their race horses or their, um, pleasure horses or even the use of horses in, in the military when there was, uh, cavalry. Uh, there wasn't the money, uh, historically for people to own companion animals, uh, other than initially the very, very wealthy people. So most veterinarians didn't work with companion animals. They worked in these production animal industries. So that's, that's where the, uh, ethos of the veterinary profession came from uh, initially. Of course, there's been a, a big shift. Um, wealthy societies, uh, North America, Europe, uh, Australasia, um, now companion animal ownership is uh, occurs in the majority of households um we've had a changing view of uh, animals like dogs for example o- over time they've moved from uh the back garden into the living room and now uh, unfortunately too often onto people's beds uh, it seems so they've become more and more a part of the family and people are expecting um healthcare standards for them uh more and more like they would expect for their other family members as well uh and now, the vast majority of, of requests by society for looking after animals come from this sector. So the vast majority of veterinarians today actually work with companion animals rather than farm animals or, or racehorses and so on. So um, there has been a shift. The vet- veterinary industry is also a service industry. They exist to, to serve um, the requests of people uh, within reason and uh, providing the, the welfare of the animals are, are safeguarded as a first priority. Um, there's been uh, an evolution in the way that veterinarians have seen animals uh, away from uh, just production units. Uh, uh, the old view of animals was that um, they didn't necessarily experience pain, they weren't sentient. Uh, now we, we view them, of course, in many other ways, and we understand that very clearly they are sentient, they do experience pain and so on. So there's been an evolution in standards. Now, whether that evolution has gone far enough um, I and other progressive veterinarians would question that. We would argue that society quite rightly expects veterinarians to be at the forefront uh, of campaigns uh, for better welfare for animals. Too often it has seemed to me that uh, veterinarians have been reluctant to stick their heads above the parapet um, for fear of alienating um, uh, some um, animal owners. Uh, a classic example is uh, campaigns uh, against hereditary disorders in pure-breed dogs. Uh, veterinarians, uh, as, a, as a profession, we're all extremely concerned about uh, these poor uh, pure-breed dogs that can't breathe properly, have uh, chronic lameness and other disorders because of of our uh, genetics. Uh, but the veterinary profession has only recently started to find its voice on this issue in a big way in the United Kingdom and some other places. Um, and I think that's because veterinarians also get some of their income from uh, servicing uh, breeders of these uh, poor dogs and have been reluctant to alienate paying clients. So there's a big sort of conflict of interest going on there between the veterinarians need to uh, generate income and survive financially and keep the practice going. Uh, and also um, the urgency to speak out on important animal welfare concerns. And I think uh, what we're seeing in recent years is veterinarians are becoming uh, much more uh, active. Uh, there are uh, associations of veterinarians that care about welfare and ethics uh, uh, being set up uh, in a number of regions of the world, including the US recently, and it's very exciting to see veterinarians becoming more involved in these issues, uh, as quite rightly uh, they should do.
5: So we have one minute left, and I know this question will probably take more than that, but can you just give us a very short take on how someone who is a vegan might approach their veterinarian to let them know that they're vegan, not even necessarily to make the animal vegan, but just how do we share this with someone in this profession who seems like they should be the expert on all things animal?
7: I I think probably the most useful way is to... Uh, say to a veterinarian, look, you know, you're you're you've, you've you're aware of the concerns about uh, meat-based diets and about the public health impacts, the environmental impacts, um, the animal welfare concerns for the farmed animals. Um, so you yourself uh, are exploring veganism. You're interested in knowing more about that issue for companion animals. You're aware that uh, there's been a concern that these diets are not suitable for cats and dogs, but you're also aware that the there's a small number of studies that have actually been done in this area and published in veterinary journals and they seem to indicate that providing the diet's nutritionally complete then there's no problem i would then actually give the veterinarian <laughs> at least the the first page with the abstract of these studies and you can get them from my website uh, veggie pets.info and then then sort of ask the veterinarian once they've had the chance to look over them to let you know what, what they think about the matter, I think that would be a great way because vets are supposed to consider evidence. They're supposed to be interested in studies like this. Um, so if you give them the time to look over them and consider it um, and approach them respectfully, um, it, it might be an opportunity to, to encourage them to start thinking about this issue.
5: It may very well be. Dr Knight, thank you so much. This has been utterly fascinating. Thanks to our earlier guest, Moby. Wahoo. Uh, <laughs> thanks to Unity Online Radio for hosting us. Next week, Jackie Day with her wonderful book The Vegan Way and the comedian Mike Kaplan from Last Comic Standing. Oh my gosh, the vegans are everywhere. Be sure and listen in then. In the meantime, God bless you and eat your veggies.
2: Are you ready to live in joy? Is there an area of your life where you could use a miracle? Have you been praying for help and guidance? Come join Lisa and Bill and their guests for an hour filled with practical tips on experiencing miracles, greater abundance. Focus, deliberate living, and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Experience more joy in life. Listen to Living in Joy, Reflections on A Course in Miracles, with Lisa Natoli and Bill Free, every Friday at 2 p.m. Central, here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
1: Of us have heard someone say, "I've learned my lesson. I'll never do that again." All too rarely do we hear, "That was a wonderful lesson. I'm glad it happened just the way it did, even though I was uncomfortable going through it." I now understand why I experienced the pain. With this new awareness, I can change my behavior so I won't make the same mistake in the future. We bear a good part of the responsibility for creating both the positive and the negative situations we experience in daily life. Wisdom comes from understanding the result of our choices and realizing that we can always choose differently. By fearlessly confronting the role you play and the experiences you may have judged as mistakes in your life, you can make future experiences fruitful and increase your wisdom. This law of life is brought to you by Unity.
2: To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org.
1: Have heard someone say, I've learned my lesson, I'll never do that again. All too rarely do we hear, That was a wonderful lesson. I'm glad it happened just the way it did, even though I was uncomfortable going through it. I now understand why I experienced the pain. With this new awareness, I can change my behavior so I won't make the same mistake in the future. We bear a good part of the responsibility for creating both the positive and the negative situations we experience in daily life. Wisdom comes from understanding the result of our choices and realizing that we can always choose differently. By fearlessly confronting the role you play and the experiences you may have judged as mistakes in your life, you can make future experiences fruitful and increase your wisdom. This law of life is brought to you by Unity.
2: To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org.
0: Only on Unity online radio, The Voice of an Awakening World.
2: We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network available wherever you get your podcasts until we meet again. Don't take your dreams lying down.